Welcome you guys to the Professor Latinx video cast and here I have Elon Stavans from Amherst College and also publisher of Restless Books along with Christopher Gonzalez who is professor at Utah State Logan and founder and director of the Latinx Cultural Center there. Welcome. Thank you. So today we are going to talk about Latinx pop culture in your lives. Um, Recently, in uh, the Latinx pop culture series with the University of Arizona Press that I have, I've been lucky enough to publish the both of you. Um, Ilan, your Sorwana or the Persistence of Pop, which is actually an ebook right now that's being offered free by the press um, to, you know, try to ease some of the anguish, you know, around not, libraries being closed, books not being available. Um, giving folks something to read and be excited about. And then Chris, Christopher, at least in my series, uh, you've got this co-authored book with me, Real Latinx's Representation in U.S. Film and TV. Really great. I love the artwork on this one. Um, but yeah, so having both of you here, can you share uh, maybe, Ilan, you can start us off here, why you chose to research and write your book, for the Latinx pop culture series? I think the Latinx pop culture series is a unique uh, window, bridge, a, a door to appreciating the pop side of Latino, Latinx, Hispanic culture, depending on the term that we want to take, uh, for this new generation. And it's going to have a transformative power. Uh, the many books that are published in the series, led, edited by you, uh, Frederick, uh, that I think will shape the minds and sensibilities of new generations. We used to uh, perceive culture as being highbrow and lowbrow, as being segregated unto itself that which was produced by the sophisticated intellectual elite and that uh, was appreciated as uh, defining what uh, the avant-garde or the vision of an established view of what a nation was uh, or wanted to be. And then the working class, the pop culture, the, 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 that which was given and produced for the masses. Fortunately, in the 80s and 90s, that uh, very artificial line, that border between the two was uh, ex exploded. It was, was, was bombarded from within. And uh, there is no way anymore to divide the highbrow from the popular. And I couldn't be happier about that. And I think that what this series is doing is the possibility of showing that from Chespirito to Tintan to Sor Juana to Octavio Paz, and I'm only talking here about Mexican icons, not about icons from other parts of Latin America or from the United States, that they all we all belong to the same group, that there's no such distinctions, and that if we are going to undermine the concept of border, it's not only the physical walls that separate us, but the mental walls, the cultural walls that we build, sometimes within academia or beyond academia, in order to, for some of us to feel more superior than others, 
when in fact the, the real world of culture is hybrid, it's mixed, it's, it's, it's a fiesta, a mosaic of possibilities. And I love the series that you've been putting together, uh, Fede, and I, and I salute you again for being able to bring Sor Juana together with uh, Chespirito. This is, to me, the big statement. The, 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 those contradictory, apparently contradictory entities or icons that can live with each other. And if they can live with each other in the same page or in the, or in the same book series, they can live in our minds together and in the minds of the larger population. Absolutely. Chris, tell us a little bit about your you know, journey here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, of course, this was a book that I co-wrote with you, Frederick. Um, and so uh, I, I have always been interested in the kind of disparity, and I think we're going to talk about this in a uh, shortly, uh, between what I see when I go out into the world and what I see when I turn on my television uh, or when I go to the cinema. Um, and so I've, I, I've always had a fascination with, um, uh, you know, kind of invisibility of Latinx culture, uh, seemingly, right? And yet we, um, we, you and I, Frederick, took this opportunity to kind of lay out uh, for people who may not have been paying attention or may not realize it, uh, this opportunity to explore the different uh, iterations of and expressions of Latinx culture. Uh, and I think what often happens, at least this is my experience with um, folks that I talk to, is that sometimes they are not even aware that certain people are Latinx, right? Uh, because it's, it, it is, it is, um, it is a, it is a, uh, we're talking about a demographic that spans uh, phenotype, that spans um, uh, the ability to use language, uh, and 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 it and it's just it provides such a such a complex range of identity expression that it it really throws a lot of people for a loop, I think, because this this nation wants wants very clear cut, you know, white and non-white, or you know, white and black, and then brown. Um, but not all Latinos are brown, right? So, um, so so I I've had an interest in the visual because. It seems to me, and, and, and you too as well, that um, uh, we can't trust our eyes when we're trying to discern how Latinidad is, is uh, how it manifests in, in visual narratives and visual culture. And so I think, right, uh, you and I, Frederick, uh, w wanted to do this book because we wanted to kind of lay out for those who haven't had the opportunity to really kind of think about this and to pay attention, we wanted to lay it out in very clear terms for them, a bit of the history and a bit of the way of looking at how this particular demographic appears in visual media. And what I love about this book is that we were, we were able to include so many full color images because, and I think we felt that was important because people, people need to see that, right? It's one thing to write about it, but to actually see um, what we're talking about, I think is very powerful for the reader. So, um, and of, of course, you are the other half of this book too. So I, I, I would throw this question back to you. Is what, what are you, you kind of, what, yeah. were, what, what, what was motivating you uh, in terms of this particular book? Yeah, yeah. I, I think both of you kind of, you know, together are kind of also part of, you know, my brain here, which is to say that, you know, I think all of us have very, 
maybe even from the very beginning of our writing, um, maybe not with my first book. Okay, let's put that one aside. But I think we've all been writing and interested in going into areas that, um, you know, writing in accessible ways about things that we may encounter in our everyday lives and that we've become habituated to and kind of putting the spotlight on those again and putting a little pressure on them and showing people actually like ways to reflect on ourself and to reflect on ourselves with others and to then possibly even go beyond self-reflection and do something, maybe create something new and put it in the world. I know, for instance, Ilan, you have restless books. I mean, you know, what an extraordinary thing that you decided to do because you saw there wasn't um, a space for this, right? Um, and so you you created it and you it, it, it exists now and there are books in that series. And Chris, you at Utah saw that there was a need for a Latinx cultural center and it wasn't there. So, you know, going beyond even the writing and the scholarship and the recognizing of um, problems or absences or erasures and doing something. Absolutely. I remember a line from Obama when he won his first uh, national election that goes not quite like this, but in the spirit of we are the hope we have been waiting for. And you can't really wait for others to open the doors that you want to go through. You have to build those doors. You have to shape that house. You have to be the one to point to that door and tell the next generation, look, the door is there. Go through it. But you might also need to build another house, another door. This is what we're here for. We cannot blame those that came before us for not having completed the job because the job is never completed. It is always about what the present generation is doing and how it is mentoring the next one to uh, have its own voice and uh, take its own perspective. Maybe there will come a time when uh, undergraduates or graduate students right now will write a book about Sor Juana or about uh, Latinx representations that will contradict our and oppose what we have said in our respective books. But that is exactly why our books exist. We don't want to be adored. We don't want to be uh, cherished. We want to enter a larger critical conversation that is about perspective and about generations assuming their own voice. That's, that's I think, what hope and change is about. Mm -hmm. Hope and change. Um, speaking of which, uh, so yes, why does, I mean, we've kind of been getting at this, but you know, so we're, we're up in the 50% or 50 millions, right? 55% of the uh, population or, and more. Um, and yet we're barely a blip on the radar. We're about 3%, less than 3% represented. Um, Ilan, you were talking about doors, um, houses, and then uh, more doors, and then maybe even um, all completely different architectured spaces by new generations that we haven't even imagined. Chris, why, tell us, why does the study and teaching of Latinx pop culture matter? Yeah, uh, well, the, the answer I always give is that, um, uh, you know, 
pop culture really reflects um, kind of a particular zeitgeist within the national consciousness, right? And if we, as a, as a demographic, don't appear uh, in that pop, pop culture, uh, that, that it goes back to that issue I was talking about before about invisibility, right? So um, we comprise a, a very significant portion of this nation and we contribute in, in wonderful, meaningful ways. But um, often those, those who are, um, uh, have the ability to, to make decisions concerning uh, um, what kind of characters or what kind of things are represented in, um, in, in, in pop culture uh, tend to not see us, right? And so um, part of what we do, right, is we kind of put pressure on uh, the system that creates a kind of representation, but then we also shine light on those uh, uh, really innovative uh, opportunities for representation uh, that may not be getting attention, right? And so we, this is, and this is where we are now, is that it's like a, it's like a DIY, um, you know, kind of take ownership of your own story uh, now with, uh, you know, different, different forms of new media and social media of uh, creating these kinds of opportunities and not waiting, right? Which is what Ilan was saying before. You cannot wait to just have, you know, someone say, well, okay, now, now is the time to have this particular kind of a, a, a you know, kind of character or, or particular identity represented. Um, it's, it's, it's often it falls to us, right? It is, it is our stories we're talking about anyway. So why not take control? Why not, why not uh, push forward in new and interesting ways of, of telling these stories? Let me ask you guys, um, so the, you know, um, like to go back over some of these um, statistics that we know pretty well, um, but then the stereotypes, right? So the stereotypes, at least in the mainstream, seem pretty fixed, right? We've been fixed as buffoons, hypersexualized maids, disloyal criminals, degenerates. Um, that's kind of what the mainstream social mirror has been reflecting back at us. What are your, how, how do you respond to uh, a TV show or uh, an advertisement like, you know, Tecate, a cold Latina, or what do you, what deep down, like what's your visceral response? Ilan, maybe. Um, just as I suggested before that there's no more, separation between highbrow and lowbrow, between kitsch and pop culture in, in, the, in the more sophisticated, refined views that we used to have in the 70s, 60s. I, it, it might sound maybe um, overly ambitious, but I think that there's no more mainstream either. Mm. In an incredibly polarized country where the right listens to what it wants and the left listens to what it wants as well. And where even the white population feels envy for the ethnic, for the uniqueness that comes from black and Latinos and Asians and hip hop and in the merengue culture. I have the impression that this mainstream that we constantly are talking 
about is a quickly vanishing a, as a carpet under our feet. Let me, let me give you a, a, a concrete example in, that might or might not work and see how, how far I can push it. I remember reading when I came to the United States in 85, I, I, maybe I read it in 87 or 88, a book by Américo Paredes uh, with his pistol in his hand about uh, Gregorio Cortés uh, and about the ethno, uh, ethnography of uh, border corridos, uh, songs about forajidos, about bandidos, about outlaws that uh, Américo Paredes uh, had rescued through um, on the field research and had done an extraordinary psychosociological political study of what the border is through those songs. To this day, I have it as one of the uh, most outstanding forms of scholarship. Go to what people are singing, see what the stories are about, uh, measure the various versions that exist, uh, validate them, and then turn that into a thermometer of how culture is working, the cultures of the North and South in the U.S.-Mexican border. An extraordinary lesson, not only for what it tells about the corrido, but what it tells about scholarship, where scholarship ought to be found. This semester, Fede and Chris, I finally have begun teaching a course that I've been dreaming about for years. It's the history of the telenovela. And uh, I have not been able to teach it before because I was always fearful that my students would not be able to access the telenovelas the way they can open a book by Gabriel Garcia Marquez or by Jorge Franco or by uh, Valeria Luisili. Uh, how was I going to be able to give them all the telenovela? It's, you know, it's 200 episodes of uh, Sin Seno Si Hay Paraíso or Rosario Tijeras or, uh, you know, La Casa de las Flores, The House of Flowers. And we have all witnessed and been participants in the Netflix revolution. And the Netflix revolution includes, if you know how to find it, a section about soap operas. So you now have the capacity to watch the Colombian version, you know, dozens and dozens of episodes of Rosario Tijeras, and then seven years later, the Mexican version of Rosario Tijeras, also dozens and dozens of episodes. And of course, you can't teach all those episodes, but you can tell students to go to episode one, two, three, 17, 18, and 19, and 35, 36, and 77, and then go and see the telenovela that came out in 1960 in Mexico and the one in Brazil and the one in Cuba. In every every Latin Latin American country has its own telenovela tradition. Uh, the telenovelas have been transformed. There, there's a connection with politics. Governments have used telenovelas to talk about birth control and about racism and about gays and lesbians and about representation. If there is a kaleidoscope or a microscope, depending on how you use it, of how uh, the Latinx generations have evolved, it's through this very mainstream uh, uh, artifact that is the, the telenovela. But, but mainstream for whom? Mainstream for Latinos? My students, dozens of them, 
have already watched many of those telenovelas. I'm not showing them for the, for, for the first time to them. Not only that, they talk about sitting with their grandmothers and with their mothers and with their tias and tios and primos and primas and vecinos, watching the episode number 17 of La Casa de las Flores and all of them crying or all of them, whatever, doing this or that. And in many ways, that's mainstream. That is really mainstream culture in Latino Hispanic culture, but mainstream for the larger population. Well, maybe if you talk about the ugly daddy and how it jumped from a, a Spanish language to an American version or, a, or another variety of it. But if you also talk about Almodovar, you, the, the movies about Almodovar, you will see the impact that the mainstream telenovelas have had on high, so-called highbrow art cinema uh, artifacts. So I think that in this very discombobulated, fragmented, uh, coronavirus-shaped, and, and there's a kind of Latinx revenge here. I mean, we are the, the tecate and the corona uh, culture that is now spreading all over in many different ways. Um, I think that the, the telenovela sensibility is actually jumping out of the Spanish-Portuguese language environments and permeating, infiltrating like a virus, other cultures in ways that might not always be visible, like the virus is not visible, but it's clearly uh, transformative. And, and if there's really a, 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 a production that is authentically Hispanic or Latinx or Latino, that's what the telenovela is about. The overexposure of emotions, the music that you put in the background when somebody says, that's not my child, or yes, I had to run away because you hated me from the moment I came out of the club, whatever it is. We, we express emotions in a way that now, when I read 100 Years of Solitude, I realize it's an incredible telenovela. It's just, it's written, it's in words. Uh, but the sens sensibility and sensitivity of the telenovela aspect has actually permeated the most sophisticated type of writing that has been produced in Spanish and in other parts of the world, in India, in, in uh, China, in the Arab world, where telenovelas have, have such an impact. Chris, how, how are you responding to this? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just taking it all in. It's just it's amazing stuff. I thank Elon for that. Um, my, my thoughts turn to this idea of is there a mainstream and for whom does the mainstream seem to resonate, right? Um, and I, I, I certainly think that, uh, that, that a key word there is like fracturing, right? If, if, if for so long there was something that, that we recognized as mainstream, say, uh, you know, storytelling in the United States, um, what 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 strikes me uh, uh, as as something that's that that seems to be going on now is uh, kind of a uh, kind of a drying up of the well, right? It's just like there aren't really interesting ideas coming out of so-called mainstream uh, media. What's what's really innovative and what's really interesting is coming from outside of that. So that 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 uh, seems to. Uh, kind of fit well with what Ilan is saying is that there's this kind of like desire to reach outside of the confines of the mainstream into these other forms that are uh, that that have existed already, 
right? But but they seem to be um, um, uh, like ill-used or not even conceived of in um, you know that which we call the mainstream. Um, and I also think what is seeming to, if, if I can extend Elon's kind of idea of the virus, uh, something that's kind of undoing this um, kind of like monolithic conception of the mainstream uh, is is this is this existence of uh, you know streaming platforms, right? Which um, and I and I think the the most demonstrable like evidence of that is how um, how petrified the established Hollywood studio system is of like Netflix and for for people like Steven Spielberg to come out and say, no, like we, we should not be considering these films. We, we should, we should be preserving um, like the cinematic experience and to have Martin Scorsese come out and say, well, well you know, these kinds of films are not actually um, uh, cinema, right? There's this kind of backlash toward um, this kind of innovative, again, almost do it yourself kind of storytelling that seems to be, seems to me to be destabilizing what we think of as the mainstream. And so insofar as um, there is like the persistence of these kind of simple notions of Latinx representation, we start to get, uh, we are certainly in a much more interesting time in seeing how uh, Latinx identity is represented. And right now my my favorite instance of that is Star Trek Picard, where we have a, a Latino captain who uh is 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 clearly signified as latino uh and 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 he's not a buffoon he is highly complex and um it also is not insignificant that that's on cbs's streaming platform right so uh, i i think these 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 other outlets and opportunities for storytelling are actually expanding uh, how we can uh, engage with Latinx identities in, in popular culture. Yeah, so is there an anxiety of arrival, Elon? I mean, we have now, so the mainstream is a, is a, a, a fragile kind of establishment holding on like by the, the little sort of ends of the fingers Spielberg and others, uh, Scorsese, right? When he said, oh, Marvel movies are not cinema. Um, and it's fragile because we have, as you both just talked about this, these abundant ways in which our art, our stories, our um, comics, our, our, our novels, you know, are getting into reaching and growing and educating and changing audiences. Do we have a sense of an anxiety of arriving or is it even an arriving? Is it, what is this moment that we're living? I would say, I, I think it's a wonderful and wonderfully uh, urgent and pertinent question. Uh, I think that good art is born out of anxiety. It, be it a comic strip, uh, a new uh, bachata song, or the most recent telenovela or the new poem. Um, I think that that anxiety comes from different uh, strata in society. In the 19th century, most artists used to come from the upper class. Those were the educated, they had gone to particular, the aesthetic views of their time, their national background. 
The 20th century transformed that dramatically. The middle class became the protagonist of art. Even at the end of the 20th century, while corporations still pretended to control the aesthetic view of society, it was really the middle class that was shaping those society, that, that cultural view. And often that middle class was made uh, by people that had recently arrived to that middle class from uh, other, either descended from the uh, oligarchy or the aristocracy or the bourgeoisie, or through college ascended to the middle class by ha having finished a degree, gone to medical school or to law school, etc. And I think that the, this, this anxiety in, of uh, how can I contribute? How can I make a stamp? How can I expand the shelf? How can I make the rhythms, the music different? How can I create a new form that will be mine in, of, or, or of my people that will uh, amplify who we are is something that each immigrant group has had in different times. When the Germans arrived, when the French arrived, when the Jews arrived, when the Irish arrived, they did not see their books on the bookshelves or their comic strips, whatever the form was there. And it has been said, I think, with, with, with very pertinently, that Latinos have taken longer to enter the middle class for a variety of reasons. Uh, that have to do with um, the, the complexity of the immigration patterns that we come from. All Italians more or less came at the same time, all Germans, all, all French, Latinos come, continue to come. They come from different strata, they come from different ethnic and racial backgrounds, different classes. They, the closeness to the place called home in the United States is unlike anything anybody has had. The Jews had to come from Russia or Poland or Hungary. You come from Mexico, which is only half an hour away. Um, but I think the anxiety that you were talking about is something that we Latinos know very, very well what it is. It, it might be expressed in different forms. Culture in Latin America is created by a middle class that is very different from the Latino middle class that is, is expanding in the United States. And I think that that will create sometimes clashes sometimes an openness to see new things. For instance, I think that the movie Roma is, a, is an incredible, incredible artifact that is coming from Netflix that revolutionized the way we see Latina, Latinx cinema, but also Latin American cinema that showed us the indigenous cultures with indigenous languages in a way that didn't feel paternalistic the way it felt before, but it was an American artifact. Mm. It was a Mexican director that had moved to England and made an agreement with Netflix. I am thrilled that Netflix took that, that offer because had it come from Mexico, it would have been a foreign film. And as it, as it happened, it was the last foreign film to win the Oscar before it became the category international films, like the one that won this year. We no longer have anything foreign in film in the Oscars. And I think that is a benchmark. The, the, the idea of the foreign has disappeared, in, but not the anxiety. The anxiety of where you sit vis-a-vis -vis who's going to watch and how. In the moment you disappear that, that anxiety, you erase art. But how do you translate that anxiety into good art 
is where talent comes, where each artist is going to do differently depending on the tools, on the, on the factors and stimulation of the time. I think anxiety is, is the key to putting your signature in something that is new. And it takes all the people that came before you and all the ones that are going to come after you and, and guts to say, this is me. I'm going to stamp my name in this particular way. And I'm going to recognize that instead of using a Prozac to kill that anxiety, I'm going to turn it into a poem mm. or, or into a comic strip or a telenovela. I'm going to keep my, moving us forward here. The, um, my anxiety <laughs> <laughs> pushing us forward. Um, yeah, I, you guys are both sort of award-winning teachers, beloved uh, in your university spaces for the way you are with your students. What, is there one um, or two or something that you can think of that's particularly your trademark as a, as a teacher, especially of Latinx pop culture or anything really? Uh, Chris, do you want to... Yeah, um, I I th I think what I what I really try to do, and this I think goes with what Ilan was just saying about this anxiety, right? Um, is to is to try to destabilize whatever preconceived notions or expectations students may have of Latinx culture. Now, I teach at a university that is predominantly white. Uh, it's like 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 eighty five, eighty eight percent of the students are white, and so. Um, what I have to do is to kind of first establish the idea that it is okay for for them to not maybe know very much uh, about Latinx culture or representation or stories, and so uh, to take them where they are at, and then to say there's so much more that you don't know yet, and and it is okay to say I have uh, just this you know just this kind of glaring pocket of stuff that I don't know, and I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to understand and just kind of leave behind, um, you know, whatever, you know, stereotype I may have of, a, of this particular group of people. And then to present them with uh, either representations in uh, whether it's film or whether it's in uh, television or streaming or in, or in uh, novel or poetry, something that breaks that, that it, it just shatters it apart. And then I come back to them again and say, now, what, what, what is your conception of, of this particular group of people or this particular type of storytelling? So, so for, for like my trademark is to always, to try to present them with something that makes them go, I had no idea, <laughs> right? So, so, so if I can do that, I think then they become much more receptive to the idea of, of a diversity and a multiplicity of storytelling uh, rather than relying or expecting the same tried and true kind of, you know, whether it's a, you know, a, what, I, what I always called the Barrio Bildungsroman, right? Is, is it something that's going to be kind of, you know, about a Latinx character that is born in poverty and has a large family and has that kind of drama? Those stories certainly comprise one tiny aspect of Latinx culture, but there's so much more. And so, 
And so just my fascination too with the speculative and with science fiction, fantasy, horror, storytelling within Latinx expressions of identity to me are really important. They're really notable. And, and that's something that I also try to bring into classes wherever I can is um, uh, with, with which I find very ironic. Whenever I teach a sci-fi film course or something like that, um, how uh, uh, very kind of narrowly con uh, conceived uh, much of sci-fi storytelling is. Uh, and it's not until more recent uh, kind of innovations there where we see differences in expressions of identity. So those are the things that I try to do is to just really bring in uh, uh, um, kind of what is to the students an unexpected mode or expression of storytelling by and about Latinos. I, I love what Chris is saying. I think students are storytellers. Mm -hmm. And uh, unfortunately, we have hierarchies and structures within academia that deprive them of their voice by forcing them to speak in, in parroting ways about a, a certain scholarly topics or to force them to do what others have already done and, and steal the or originality and authenticity that they have. Um, I never dreamed Feather to be a teacher. It was serendipity for me. And I needed a visa at one point, was already in the United States. And the easiest way was to enroll in graduate school. And at one point they said to me, uh, here's the way for you to pay your graduate school tuition is take this book, go into that classroom and figure out what you do with it because we have no idea. And uh, I was uh, scared to death. You know, I, my English was very precarious at that time and uh, had never as a Spanish speaker ever thought of what a preposition, a noun or an advert is. You don't know your language until you have to to teach it. I suddenly discovered that there is no better place in the world. There's no better Aleph than to be in a classroom. All the universes converge in the classroom where you are. And uh, it, you really are the only person who has been in that classroom all the time because everybody's new. Everybody's arriving for the first time. And you are aging. They are not. They are always the same age. I have learned over the years to appreciate the silences of my students and to learn a lot from them. I love the little time that they take to formulate, to formulate a sentence. Just when they raise their hand, you give them the opportunity and there's a little second or two until they start speaking. And then I have learned as well that, that silences have accents in, and that we Latinos have an incredible panoply of, of accents that, that, are, that are projected into those silences. And people from different backgrounds are, get quiet in different ways. I remember when growing up that well, I watched Star Trek. Chris was referring to it. And because it was in Mexico, it was dubbed into Spanish. So when Kirk would say something, there would be a second before the voice would come out because that's the way the dubbing took place. In, or in a telenovela, because they usually have an apparato, a little device that told them everything that would, they would need it to be said, somebody would say, 
te amo. And there would be a second before the yo también te amo. I mean, you would think the other person would jump and say, te amo, yo también, claro. But instead, that was that second that had to do with listening to what the response was going to be. And I think that culture is born in those seconds of silence, in that organizing your thoughts. I love when students begin to organize their thoughts. And my Latino students, Latina students, are putting together various languages together, various images together, all to be able to communicate things with sounds and with silences. And it's kind of a symphony. It's, it's, it's joyful. It's, it's joyful to pay attention to what they say, and it's joyful to pay attention to how they say it. And I try to celebrate them in the classroom for both, for what they say and try to push them to say in a sharper, clearer, more persuasive, more convincing way in how they say it. And I also try to push them there too, if they are using too much the word like or este or whatever it is, that they become aware of their patterns, their performative presences before others. Ultimately, I think the, the best type of teaching is just like Chris was saying, the one that empowers the student to be herself or himself or whatever pronoun is going to be used in a way that might even contradict the teacher. I like the students who tell me I'm wrong. I actually prefer them than the ones that tell me, yes, 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 whatever you say. Those, the students that contradict are probably the ones that are going to get far. I don't want to minimize the others. But, you know, they, 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 have a, they already are putting their stamp on looking at things differently. And that's, that's I think, why we're there. Super Bowl 2020, even if you weren't there, I'm sure you saw the craziness around it. So how did you respond? Chris, I know you uh, like were right there on it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I had finished a blog post before the game had even ended um, because I knew uh, what was going to happen. Uh, I knew there was going to be a backlash that these women were, you know, using their bodies in particular ways that they were somehow going to be, they were going to offend viewers uh, kind of salaciously and, um, and whatever other criticism was going to come their way. And I, 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 first of all, I thought the performance was wonderful. I thought it was very engaging. You know, the Super Bowl for now many years has, has gone very conservative after Justin Timberlake and Janet Jackson um, and so, like in the in the immediate aftermath of that, you had very like old, like older, well-established uh, uh, artists um, at you know that kind of follow. They were kind of safer, right? So it hasn't been until recently where they kind of allowed, um, dare I say, younger uh, acts on on that halftime stage. And so. Um, I, I didn't. I didn't know how it was going to come off, and I thought it was. I thought it was masterful. I thought that that uh, Shakira and J Lo both um, held stage. You know, one didn't overshadow the other, and they actually came together. There was there was a moment of a of, of political uh, statement, even though it was kind of small, right? But but it was certainly there, and I'm just. I was just very impressed that these women at their age, right? You know, in their forties, and then J Lo was fifty. 
it was, was they were both able to ex just do things with their bodies that, that, that were just very impressive to me as a former athlete, looking at that in my age, knowing I, I, there's no way I could do some of that stuff without hurting myself. Um, and so I, I, was, I, was, I, I was very much in support of, of what they did. I thought they accomplished exactly what they were supposed to accomplish. I know some people didn't agree, which is fine, um, but, but my sense was we all know the kind of show these two women put on it should have been no surprise that this is what they did, the kind of costumes that they wore. Um, and I thought they did just uh, just a fantastic job of, of giving the world uh, just a taste of what it is that they do in terms of their um, uh, the kind of sense of performance. So, I, I, and of course, you know this, Frederick, but I, I was very supportive of it. And I, I, I thought it was a really well done performance. Yeah, I, I must confess that I don't pay much attention, uh, a little attention, because I'm a patriot. I used to be a patriot fan up until about three weeks ago or four, or four weeks ago. <laughs> and, and, uh, but to football, and, and, uh, and even less so to the halftime of the Super Bowl. But I, unless I had been in Mars or in Jupiter, I, of course, had to hear all about it. I love the, the Puerto Ricanness that came out of all this in the age of Trump. If there has been, if there have been two groups that Trump has denigrated uh, in in consistent ways, are Mexicans and Puerto Ricans. Uh, again, you have to be in Mars or in Jupiter not to have noticed this at all. So I I I, I was delighted with the Puerto Rican side that came out of this. I love the fact that that older women uh, and Latina women can be as sexy, uh, project that sexiness on the big, the big stage. Um, the, the, maybe we are experiencing finally the possibility of the female Latina body aging in front of our eyes and uh, being in control of itself in ways that it didn't used to be. It used to be the 17-year-old to 22 and the abuelita that was going to give you the message about how to drink your chocolate, hot chocolate, and go to bed. Um, I think that both of them are a lesson on aging in public. That is probably at 58, a, a male, a, at a time of the Me Too movement, an important a, story a, for me. How, how, how do we age in public? Um, I think that the coronavirus period is going to be a lot about aging. Uh, we are being sequestered. Maybe an entire year of our life is going to be erased or counted in different ways for men and women. And just looking back at what happened in that halftime is in and of itself from the perspective of today, the second day of March, seems like a fiesta that uh, is, is going to take a while to come back. Sadly, yes. Um, oh, boy. Um, one last, as we sort of wrap this up. Oh, Isabella. Um, as we wrap this up, um, uh, where are we? Um, Isabel? Hello, Isabel. <laughs> Hello, Isabel. Hello. Um, um, your voice is, we can't, I can't hear you. Um, but just maybe listen in where um, I'm, I'm asking uh, Chris and Ilan, Ilan. Here, 
and we've covered so much, um, so much already, but is there something that maybe Ilan, I know your restless books, you're really making, you're, you've opened the door for new stories and new kinds of ways of shaping stories. Chris, I know that you um, have brought artists and uh, from children's book creators all the way through to, you know, artists in your community. Um, what, is it just everywhere? Is the vitality everywhere, I guess? I think the vitality, and, and I, I, I want to start this section, uh, Fede, um, with an applause to you. You, you have been an invaluable force in bringing the varieties of uh, cultural activity and production uh, into the academic world in a way that uh, gives it legitimacy and in a ground to stand on. Uh, the work that you've done with comics uh, is, is superb. The, the work that you have done in opening a book series that deal with a biography and with the folklore and with popular culture is truly, truly remarkable. And I, my impression is that we are seeing really a, a, an abundance of creativity that is, is, is pushing us in, in very many directions. And maybe, and maybe if, the, if we can go back to what we were saying at the very beginning, it's going to generate, it's going to uh, bomb, sabotage the, con the concept of mainstream even more. What is mainstream? Who, who is in the mainstream? And do people in the mainstream still want to be in the mainstream? Really? When it's so much fun to be somewhere else? And that maybe in a few years, there might be some nostalgia by some of us who are in the periphery, having a lot of fun, bringing stuff to the mainstream um, for a unified uh, orchestra-like voice that brings, a, that, that is a sum of parts that, uh, that will be like, like the world of yesterday. But it will only be a nostalgia uh, because I don't think that uh, in this global world we can anymore have that sense of everybody tuning in to see one mm -hmm. uh, a newscast or one sh show on television or read one book. I think what defines us today is that everybody is in tribes with lots of creativity, with uh, alternative visions, and in, in that fractured nature of reality is, uh, can be really anxiety-producing. What brings us all together? In what way are we all together? Do we want to be all together? Is the concept of the, the common good and the common community still, are, are they still viable? Or is it better now to be tribal in the age of global? I, I think all these questions are going to become more urgent not for those that were at the center, but for many of us who have been enjoying the back and forth from the periphery to the center and back. Um, and it might be a false nostalgia, but it will be drive certain voices forward in different ways.
We have Isabel Molina Guzman joining us right here um, for this really kind of important wrap up question. And then Isabel, I'm gonna, I will get back with you for our own session in just a little bit. Um, but uh, Chris, what, tell me where you're seeing kind of this vital, or if it's a vital uh, vitality, if it's a vitality that's projected into a future that we then nostalgically project back, or if it's something you're seeing now? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it, um, we're now in a situation where um, you don't, like, creators don't have to wait for that, um, whatever that, that um, thing that says, oh, I am now an artist, I am now a storyteller whether it's a book contract or whether it's your script is taken up um, by some studio or director or producer. Now, I mean, I have, I have two daughters, they're, uh, you know, they're 15 and 12 and like TikTok allows them to make these tiny little like stories. Um, um, you know, Instagram allows my older daughter to share the artwork that she creates and people, engage with it and people are uh, just super interested in, 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 in uh, not not that you know that that idea of the mainstream right um, it's the it's kind of the grassroots creation of art and stories and I think what is what is uh, kind of the game changer now is the tools that uh, that that we now have right which is um, a very low cost uh, kind of, uh, kind of, kind of introduction to these tools, and then the dissemination of this art uh, is is just it's just easier now. And so, um, and not only is it easier, there are, there are receptive, willing, uh, eager audiences to consume these stories that we no longer have to wait for you know a blockbuster you know with you know hundreds of millions of dollar budget to see, you know, Latinos in a story, it can be something that appears on a YouTube channel. It can be something that appears on an Instagram feed, right? So I think that's, that's encouraging and it's very exciting to me because um, I, 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 I think that idea of the nostalgia kind of looking back, how do we, um, you know, kind of now interpret that? Well, who, you know, who had the um, kind of the serendipity to be able to publish a book, to you know have uh, you know a large part in a particular film, those are kind of like lightning in a bottle moments. And so, if we are confronted with a system that already has very narrow conceptions of what kind of Latinos, of what kind of stories Latinos can participate in, then that becomes a kind of um, gate that 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 keeps them out, or a wall, if you will. But now we have these uh, different modes of uh, outreach in terms of storytelling, and um, th this is this is what, what what excites me too because we're in the middle of it right now, and it'll take time, you know, ten, fifteen years back at this time to see what's happening. Um, but uh, but I'm I, this is this is a this is a very exciting time, and I'm very encouraged by what's happening uh, at this moment, uh, despite the uh, coronavirus. Um, uh, uh, you know, kind of pandemic, but it also, I think, gives an opportunity for people to 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 have an outlet to be creative as well. So, um, yeah, it's exciting time. Isabel, can um, do you have your mic on? 
I do. Yes. Do you want to, <laughs> what's, where are you? And I'm going to, we're going to have our own episode next, but um, what, what, where, do you see, where do you see the life force right now in Latinx uh, kind of pop culture? Latinx pop culture, um, probably with, with youth culture um, is what I would say, you know, really, um, as Chris has mentioned, um, I would say, you know, college aged high school kids who are really embracing these alternative forms of media production, whether it be TikTok or Instagram or, or Snapchat or whatever the latest one is, um, you know, I think the fact that um, they're able to produce and disseminate to the audiences that are interested in hearing their voices um, is, is really central. And, you know, um, at the same time, I've seen a lot of students go back to very traditional media forms, uh, you know, theater and uh, zines and comic books. And so that to me is also really interesting. Mm-hmm. The way they're embracing um, non-digital forms as well as uh, as ways to express themselves and their politics, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I and I and I think in some ways, I mean, I guess I'm always a little nervous to over um, to celebrate the digital too much because all of these formats we're talking about Netflix. Hulu, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram are corporate. I mean, they're corporately owned. They're commodified forms of communication. The data that 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 is being produced, the content that's being produced, is um, is content that is benefiting, um, you know, uh, media corporation. And so I'm always a little like a little bit of a cynic in that sense, um, while it does open up the, these amazing spaces of expression and production. Um, they're not free, mm-hmm. and they're and, and they are mediated, right? Um, the the there is somebody controlling or somebody that can control the flow of of communication and and expression so in that way i think it's kind of radical the way that some but particularly you know latino latino latinx youth culture is really embracing these non-digital forms of cultural expression um i think is really is really interesting in that way because that's something that can't be commodified Mm -hmm. right um and so or it can be commodified but it's not it's under their control, literally, um, as opposed to using someone else's um, format, even though they often recirculated on these digital formats, right? So, so I think it's really exciting. I think um, one of the things that's particularly exciting to me is the way that that um, these new kinds of of of, of media, these new media, um, are allowing a diversity of. Um, of, of faces to show up under the umbrella of Latino, Latino, Latinx, you know, um, we're seeing more racial diversity. Um, and I think that's really cool, more gender and sexual diversity, which I think is again, you know, really, um, really heartening to me that, um, that we're, you know, the, the way that, um, you know, these, these new media allow young people to express themselves is really rupturing this kind of mainstream media representations of, of, um, of our communities. And I think that's really, um, for me, the coolest part of what I'm seeing is that not all the faces look the same. 
um, and that there are really some really interesting, I wouldn't say radical stories because they're the stories of the communities that are producing them in that, and, and so they're the lived, the, these lived experiences that are just very different from the kinds of narratives that we've gotten in the past. Thank you so much. Fede, if I can just add one more, one more thing connected, in particular with something that Chris said, but also with, with what Isabel was saying. Um, one of my, my, my idols is Tintan, this incredible comic of the 60s and 70s, <laughs> who really could be credited, should be credited for having invented Spanglish. Uh, or at least projected Spanglish on the big screen. Um, he produced more than a hundred movies. movies yeah. Describe them as absolutely trashy. He would do many of these movies so quickly he wouldn't even remember what the movie was about. Yeah. He was the 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 pocho and the pachuco in them. Uh, he did really border culture before any of us ever imagined what border yeah. culture was all about. And he used a platform, movie making, that was really owned by uh, Mexican corporate muggles at that time and subverted it from within and allowed the, all those products to reach the population in East Los Angeles and in La Villita in Chicago. Uh, there were movie theaters that during the day would project only English language movies, but at 12 o'clock at night in Chicago would project a movie by Tintan or in LA or in, in, in different places of Texas. And um, he didn't think he was doing, so to speak, high art, but it's an incredible type of art. He ironically was was looked down in Mexico as a this is a pachuco that is just doing stuff about the United States. And now that you go to Mexico, I was just there in December. I don't know when we'll be able to go back. The pachuco now is like coffee mugs and, and little uh, clocks and T-shirts. The pachuco in Mexico through Tintan has become the the a real icon many, many, many years later. And I think in some ways he is a, is a, is a kind of terrorist figure that mm. the mainstream and explodes it right on your face with the very tools that the mainstream has produced and creates something that opens up new vistas. And in that sense, it's, it's really extraordinary how I would say many of his movies are incredible movies, but when they came out, they were totally looked down. Um, the future, you, one never knows how the future will read us. I'm laughing because I just, uh, I taught a Latino film class and um, one of my students, we actually looked at some of his films, which I, I can't remember where I found some digital reproductions of them, and um, and we had a whole conversation about him because it was her. She had she grew up watching his movies because her he was uh, her father's favorite. Those were his her father's favorite movies to watch. So when we showed them in class, you know, I asked if anyone had ever seen them before. And she's like, Oh my gosh, I grew up watching these movies. So he's having a resurgence yeah. in this, um, you know, yeah. with this generation of viewers. So terrific. Well, I want to thank um, Ilan and Christopher and Isabel and stay tuned because I'm going to uh, get back with Isabel, the Professor Latinx video cast next. 
Um, but thank you, Isabel, for coming in. And that I apologize for um, not getting the times right. But thank you all for joining me and take care. And thank you, Philip.